So this morning, um, if you check up the, the slide for me, Luke, the, we're, we're kind of coming into Go Day, so this is kind of a, uh, a lead-in into Go Day, if you will, but we're going to be talking about this topic of not mine. Okay, everybody say, not mine. I like that. Let's say it one more time. Not mine. I like the Kiwi accents. It says but it's better than the American accent. Not mine. So that's what we're talking about this morning. And, and really, we're going to be looking at the topic of ownership. So who owns something? Okay. Everybody that didn't put your hand up, we need to go back to praying that God is holy because we're, we're lying in church. But ownership, this topic of what it is to own something, what it is to understand what it's like when you own something. And, and I know I have too many illustrations for my boys, but you can tell that I spend a lot of time with them, okay? So I, this is my chance to spend some time with adults and I feel good rather than just a two-year-old and a one-year-old. But I'm trying to teach my little boy about ownership, Archer. And so he's, he's two and a half years old. I don't know if we've succeeded at this point in time about teaching about ownership. And so when I'm saying ownership, it's like, how do you treat stuff that you own? But also, how do you share things that have been given to you with other people? How do you share those things? And then also, kind of a big one for him that he's, he's really failing at right now is, how do you treat other people's stuff that doesn't belong to you? Um, an example of this is we're in Pack and Save. My stories also revolve around Pack and Save. We spend a lot of time in the grocery store. Um, I did the laundry the other day, and there was, a, there was a, a dad in there doing the laundry as well. And I was like, shout out to the laundry dads. You know, like we're drying it in the, in the laundromat. But anyways, we're in Pack and Save. And Archer had a little book in his hand, like a little, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a chunky book, right? And I try and distract him at times. That's my, the art of distraction is like the key to parenthood, I think. And so he had this little book and, um, and we were driving past the, the bread aisle and, um, and before I could do anything, he pulls his book up and he slams it down on a piece of bread. And I hear the, the crinkle of the bread and I inspected the bread and the bread survived. So it's okay. But we had to have a discussion about this bread does not belong to us. How do you treat things that don't belong to you? Archer, we can't just go smash this bread. We have not bought this bread. We're about to buy this bread because you smashed the bread. And even if I did buy the bread, daddy still doesn't want you to smash my bread. Leave my bread alone, right? Another example of this, Archer is really, he does understand ownership to some degree. When we're doing our laundry, he's like, Dad, that's your work shirt. Mom, that's your pants. Bennett, that's your pajamas. So he, he understands things that belong to him. And especially he understands the toys that belong to him. And all of the toys in our house belong to Archer. And he's had two and a half years, almost three years of owning these toys. These are like his toys. Don't touch his toys. And so it, it's not been an issue except for the fact that Bennett, my, my younger son, is he's getting older now. He's just turned one recently. And so it was his birthday recently. And um, Bennett's finally starting to take some of Archer's toys and there's disagreement and it's not working well. And like, it's just, it's not going good. But a, a story that I think illustrates this is, is Bennett's birthday last month. And so we went to the warehouse to go pick out a present for Bennett. And we told we told Archer on the way, dude, we're going to get a present, a big present for your brother for his birthday. But we're going to get a small present for you because we're not leaving you out. We got your back, you know. And so he even told us back. He said, OK, we're going to get a big present for Bennett. It's his birthday and a little present for me. So he told us he understood what was happening. We go into the warehouse and we're looking for this present. We're looking for 
what can we get for Bennett? And he doesn't really have too many toys that Archer hasn't already claimed. So we wanted to get him a little car that we could push him in. So we found the car and we got it down in the box and we showed Bennett and he's pointing at it and he doesn't have words. So he just said gibberish and was pointing and he saw the present. And Archer said, this is mine. This is going to be mine. We had to look at him. We said, no, remember we had this discussion and he already had the little toy that we were going to give to him. This is, this is your brother's for his birthday present. And he looks at us, he looks at me and Angie, and he looks at each of us, and then he runs over to Bennett and gives him an uppercut in the stomach. And uh, before we could do anything, and he's pretty quick, and we do like to play wrestle, but he was quicker than we could do. Luckily, Bennett was in his, his stroller, so he couldn't, he, he didn't like get the full brunt, and I think he's still smiling because he's getting this car and his brother's not, you know? Um, but this topic of ownership, what it is to share something with someone else, or how do you treat something that you don't own? But I'm not saying Bennett's guiltless in this. He'll take Archer's toys. Like he, the only toy he wants to play with is the one that Archer's playing with. And I, there's there's nothing more that makes me happy, like deep down in here, than when Bennett will grab a toy of Archer's that Archer has been like, I'm playing with this one. The look on Bennett's face when he snags this toy that he knows he's not supposed to have is like. He lights up just like, you know, like a balloon. And he's just like, and you can see him running and he's got this waddle run. And so it just, it's this picture I think I'll carry forever that when he's trying to take something of, of Archer's, it's like the happiest thing ever, you know. And um, But that's what we're looking at this morning is this topic of ownership. But before we break it open, I want to just share the key verse with you. And if you have your Bibles, I would really encourage you to open it up to 1 Corinthians 6.19. If you have a Bible app. Open that up, slide on over to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Talking about ownership, what that looks like. This is a very, very, everybody probably knows this verse or has heard it before. That's been around for a little while. So 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here's the here's the key verse that's lean into this. You are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. As I was thinking about ownership and the ownership that Archer is struggling with at times, I think at times we can struggle with that same kind of ownership of our own lives. But the Bible here says, you are not yours. I am not mine. We are not ours. That's a powerful statement, and I think it is a countercultural statement. I don't think that's really popular to say that I am not mine, like this, that my life is not my own. I think we would fight against that oftentimes to say, no, my life is my own. I got to look out for numero uno, right? Number one, if if I'm not going to look out for myself, who will look out for me? I'm not my own. So that, I think there's this fighting against this concept. And I think it's out there that people want to live for other people or they want to be out there. But it's pretty hard to fight against this thought that we're not our own. But I kind of understand that whole that whole concept that you do have to look out for number one, because I mean, if you don't look out for yourself, who is going to look out for you? 
You know, I, I, I understand the mentality, but I think something that has been missed, why we can rest in the fact that we're not our own is not because of anything light, but it's actually something pretty, I think, comforting that we can rest in. I would suggest that being not our own is a pretty scary concept, meaning we have to live if our life is not our own, how do we live like that? And people reject it. I want to live for myself. I want to protect numero uno. But somebody has done something so that you can live as if your life is not your own. Because it says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So before we try and unpack what it is that our life is not mine, we have to understand that this isn't a scary thing. But we have somebody who sent his own son to die for us. And this somebody isn't just a random, this is God, the creator of the universe, the guy that can move mountains. He sent his very son that he would die so that you and I could have life. We were bought with a price. It wasn't that we're not our own and it's this really, this hard thing and nobody's going to look out for us. It's almost the opposite. We as believers can live like we're not our own because somebody has our back far better than we could ever have our own backs. It's not this altruistic thing that we engage in that we say our life is not our own and we feel so great that we're serving a cause greater than ourselves. It's actually a far safer place to be. That somebody has our back like no one has had anybody's back ever before in the history of the world. That Jesus has died for you and I so that he paid a price for every single piece of pain, every single piece of grief, every single piece of protection that you and I could ever need. He's paid the price for that. That's This is an encouraging thought this morning that you are not your own is not a bad thing. This is a really good thing. And we rest in the confidence that we're not our own because somebody has paid the price for the things that we would naturally want to protect in ourselves if we were not living as our own. If you're looking out for number one. One of the things I think we can understand is that this whole concept of what it is for something to cost something. What it is to have a price for something. And so um, I really like to get my money's worth out of things. Who likes to like buy something and get their money's worth out of it? I'm, I really like to stretch things. Most of my socks have holes in them because they still function as socks even though there's holes in them. I'm getting my money's worth out of those things. Aaron's with me on that. Aaron's with me on that. But I like to get my money's worth out of different kinds of things. And... Uh, I like to keep things for as long as possible. In, in my house, I'm the hoarder of things. And in my house, Angie is the thrower-outer of things. That's just like, she, yeah, there we go. She she throws out things that, like, if I don't expressly say, I want to use this on November the 6th on 2016, that thing is going in the trash. Um, family photos, if we don't look at them soon enough, they're gone. You know, like, she, she, she doesn't throw out family photos, but you understand the point. Angie gets rid of things quick, but but I really like to to get as much as I can out of something. And then I, I really think this is true as well, is the greater the cost, the more you want out of that thing, right? So when you buy a car, like thousands and thousands of dollars go into that car, your hope is that that car doesn't just sit in the garage and you never drive it. I, I actually really enjoy going to buy a car. 
I don't know what it is. It's the negotiation. It's just the kind of fun. My dad tells me there's a rule. You have to at least walk out dramatically during car negotiations at least once. Otherwise, you're not successfully buying a car. You know, like, so it's just, there's this kind of like fun in buying a car that I enjoy. I've bought a number of, I don't know if like, it's like that in New Zealand, but in the States, I've bought a number of cars and uh, I've helped family members buy cars and things like that. But I do know that when you buy a car, you want to get the absolute most out of it that you possibly can because you're putting a whole lot of money into it. I mean, I bought a car for $750, my first car in Masterton. I didn't get a lot out of it. It died on the way back from Riversdale one day. And I was okay with that because I hadn't put too much into it. But I think the premise stands that the greater the cost, the more you want out of it. And I think how much you spend really puts the value on what that thing has. And this morning, this is the thought, or one of the thoughts that I'd just like to register with us and to, to linger with us, that if you and I were bought with a price, what is the return on investment that God is getting for that price? If you were bought with a price, if you've had something done for you that there's no value you can put to Jesus giving his own, Jesus laying his life down for us. What is the return on investment that Jesus is getting for the price that he's paid for you? And, and so return on investment is just simply what you get back from something that you've given. And I would suggest to you that I don't think Jesus is wanting to get back directly to himself, but that he's wanting you to invest what you have been given into other people. And specifically this, that when we're looking at our life is not mine, what Jesus did for you and the price that he paid so that we can live in this place that our life is not our own, he's asking us to lay our life down for others. That when we're saying our life is not our own, it's not to serve ourselves, not to say what could be the best thing for me, what is the style that I prefer, what are these things that look good for me, but how do you lay your life down for others? That our life is not our own. There's another verse that I think really describes this really, really well. And I just want to set up for this verse. It's kind of saying the same thing. But I want us to lean into the words of what Paul is saying. It's Paul again. Um, it's Acts 20, verse 24. But this interchange happens when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's already spent a whole lot of time with the church at Ephesus. But he's going to Jerusalem and he asks the elders at the church of Ephesus to, to drive on over and whatever cars they had back then to the coast because he's in, in, en route by boat to Jerusalem because he had to get there. Um, and it's coming towards the end of his ministry at this point in time. So the elders at Ephesus, they make the journey to the coast and they meet with Paul. And Paul tells them immediately, this is the last time that I'm going to meet with you. This is the last time that I'm going to talk to you. How many of you know that if you know that it's the last time you're going to talk with somebody, what you're going to share is going to be really, really important, or it's going to be really poignant, or there's going to be something that you're really after. So when we're, we're listening to these words, we're not listening to these words with the ear of there's going to be more encouragement tomorrow or there's going to be other additions to this. But this is Paul's, what he found was so important to share with these people the very last time that he was going to be with them. So this is what he says. He says, but I do not account my life of any value. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I'm going to share that verse again with you, but this time I'm going to share it in the form of a rap song because I think Lecrae is is one of my favorite Christian hip-hop artists, favorite Christian rappers. He has a song where he he talks about this this verse, and he just puts it in other words, and I think it's easier to, to kind of take in. He says this, Man, I consider my life nothing. If I could just finish the race... And complete the, the job the Lord Jesus gave me. I live to tell the world his message. I live to tell the world his message. If I could just complete the job the Lord Jesus gave me. I live to tell the world his message. My life is not mine. Your life is not yours. We live to tell the world his message. And that happens, and if I could just do what the Lord Jesus has called me to do. These are the words of Paul that we hear, the most important thing that he could think of to tell these church elders that he's labored with, that he's worked with. What's the most important thing? That we live to tell the world his message. Not that we live to congregate on Sunday mornings, but we live to tell the world his message. Not to come and bring your preferences of these different things, but how do you be the living embodiment of what God has called you to do and to be? What has he called you to do? And it's not to serve yourself, not mine. My life is not mine. I think about the different aspects of how this fleshes itself out. Our time, our energy, our resources, our talents. If they are not ours, they've been bought with a price. What is the return on investment that God is getting with each of those things? with your time, with your energy, with your resources. I wonder, what is God's return on investment? I find examples are probably the, the, the easiest way to draw and to learn from. And I think the story of Esther is a powerful one. And I'm not going to go into her whole story, but just to set up for you, Esther's in a in a captive land, and she becomes the queen of this great nation, where her people are held captive in this nation. And the king is not aware that Esther is, is actually a Jew. She's, she's hidden that from him. But her people come onto the chopping block at a period of time. All of her people are scheduled for execution. And she is presented with an opportunity to use her position, her time, her energy, all of that stuff to either meet her own needs where we have someone that is set up completely fine. We have somebody that's going to be very wealthy for the rest of her life. We have somebody that's going to be more protected than anyone else ever could be in the nation. We have somebody that God has blessed with a life where she is completely doing well. Maybe very similar to us today in our respective Western worlds where we're doing okay. Did you all see the story about the 11 Christian aid workers in Syria that came out this weekend? It, it struck me powerfully. Out of those 11 Christian aid workers, one of them was a 12-year-old boy that was taken with in Syria. And they were asked to renounce their faith. And the little boy, he was tortured in front of 300 people, and he still chose not to renounce his faith. They ended up, and this, excuse me, it's graphic, they ended up crucifying him and his father 
because they wouldn't renounce their faith in Jesus. I think about us, and I just think, man, that that young boy of 12 years old understood the concept that my life is not my own. I was so impacted by that. But we see this happen again with Esther. She's presented with this situation of putting her life on the line for an entire nation of people. So I just want to read this out very briefly. Esther 7 verse 2 says this, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish. Don't kill me. And also don't kill my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Esther understood that her life was not her own, and she put her life on the line for a group of people who were on the chopping block. And I would submit to you that there's a whole world out there that are potentially in line of harm's way, and are we willing to lay our lives down to serve them and put our lives on the chopping block to understand my life is not my own? And this is going to work itself out differently in each and every one of us. This isn't for us all to go become missionaries like Claire. And some of us might be called to do that. But in your life right now, what does it look like if you were to say, my life is not mine? Would it stop you from criticizing the people next to you and start you worrying about how are you making the difference? My life is not mine. Our life is not ours. What are we doing to walk that out? I live to tell the world his message. What has he called you to do to not be your own? What a powerful thing that we get to experience and live for that Jesus has bought us with a price where we can actually rest easy in that calling. That it's not this striving, Jesus, I just want to please you. He's already paid the price. It's literally for us to walk that out, understanding that our life is not ours. Amen. Esther understood that what she had been given was given to her for others. So the, the passage that we're looking at for Godet, have you, you've heard it a couple times. Aaron shared it last week, but it's Matthew 25, 34 through 40. And it talks about Jesus saying, feed those that are hungry. Give drink to those that are thirsty. Visit the stranger. Visit the person in prison. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. But I want to I want to backtrack just half half a a chapter, if you will. The passage right before we hear about Jesus saying, "Feed these people." He's talking about the parable of the talents. So we know what the parable of the talents is. It's when Jesus tells a parable of this master who gave three of his servants talents. And I love the word that talent means for us. You know, our talents, our abilities, but it was a monetary value. But what a powerful picture of our talents and our gifts that God has given us. He's given them differing talents, different kinds of talents. And he says, I'm going to be gone. Here you go. And the first two, they go away. And the first thing that they do is they trade their talents away. They're giving their talents away. And the last guy goes and hides them in the ground. But what happens is when you give your talents away, there's a multiplication that will come back to you that happens when we understand our life is not our own and we sow the talents that God has given us. It's, it's this 
upside down kingdom principle that when you give it away, you actually get a lot much, you get, you get more back. And so that is the thing that I think is such a powerful picture that those that are in need, we need to give to them and it will give, be given back to us, but in a return that mimics Jesus's life and what he did. He came not to be served, but to serve. And it's taking on that whole concept of what can I do with my talents, not just bury it in the ground and keep it for myself or like Esther. If she was just to sit in that place of saying, I've got everything taken care of me, I might throw a bone to a, uh, a Jew that's outside, or I might try and help my uncle Mordecai, but she put her life on the line for an entire people. And that's, I think what Jesus is calling us to is to live our lives, not for ourselves, but to live our lives for others in that regard. I love this thought. I think it just, I think it summarizes so powerfully what we're talking about. There's a picture and in first Corinthians 15 verse 45, it says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living being and the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. I think too often the sum of our lives is to make sure that we are living beings. All of our energy, our time, and our resources goes into how do I sustain my own life as a living being? And that would, would have been appropriate pre-Jesus. But I think post-Jesus, the second man, what's the new mandate that he gave for us? We need a transition from being living beings to being a life-giving spirit. That the sum of our lives now stops trying to feed me and mine and, and, and mine to being, how do I give away the life that has been given to me? Amen? Ooh, this is not a popular thought in today's society, but that's why I started off saying, we've had the price paid for us. So this is a delight. If I could just finish the race the Lord Jesus gave me, I live to tell the world his message. I believe that is God's desired return on investment, that we transition from being a living being to a life-giving being. And can I be practical for a moment? Can I suggest that this isn't just when you do a nice thing for someone in need, but this is every single interaction that you have with every single person. That before you start to criticize, before you start to speak a harsh word, before you start to ignore, you say, God, I'm actually not looking to satisfy my needs as a living being, but where can I give life in this situation? Where can I speak life in this situation? Where can I be the life that needs to be sacrificed for somebody else? How do we be a life-giving spirit? I see a powerful release that if we can take on that mantle to be life-giving people, that's powerful. If you go into an interaction knowing that somebody else has that on their agenda, I'm really encouraged by that. When you get into a meeting, it's, it's not fighting against. It's saying, I'm going to do everything I can to give life in this situation because I understand that my life is not my own. It's kind of like Archer smashing that bread and pack and save. That's not his. So I need to teach him. How do you treat something that's not 
yours. And what we're going into this morning is that if your life is not yours, how do you treat what you do with your life in light of that context? That's a powerful thought that I hope captures the heart of not just our church, but the church today. That if we were interested in giving life rather than asserting our opinions, what a powerful transition that would be. Amen? I get excited. Let's give away life. And then I just wanted to share some of the things, just one or two more things that folks are doing in the Go Day coming up. There's a home group who I'm going to, I'm going to have them remain nameless, but they're going to be reaching out to a family in our own congregation that's in, that's in need. And they're not just reaching out one time, but they're decided to adopt this, this family as a family of their own, where they're going to be providing prayer support. They're going to be providing practical support. They're going to be providing relational support. And they've told me, they said, we want to make this an ongoing thing. What a powerful thing. Home groups are powerful. Go and get fed by the word of God, but also go and give that word of God that you've been fed. What a practical way that I was so encouraged to hear of a home group that's rallying together. There's another home group that has decided to um, rally around the police in Upper Hutt who have not had the easiest run of things in the last couple months. And they want to go and provide the morning tea for every single shift of the police um, for Go Day and saying, we want to honor you and come together and support you and be life-giving in that regard. A small gesture can mean a lot, but Go Day, and hear my heart, and, and let this percolate in your spirits. Go Day is not this single action, but it is a life that says, I want to give life. I don't want to just continue being a living being. It's not random what we're after, but it's relational and it's continual. The one-offs are powerful. And, and, and if you serve and you do once a month and you serve, don't let that check off your life-giving on your list. When you wake up in the morning, that's your new opportunity to be a life-giving, life-giving being. Amen? We are not our own. My life is not mine. Let us serve others. I love what Mother Teresa says. She says, if you can't feed a thousand people, then feed one. If you can't give life to a thousand people, then give life to one. Amen. So let's just close in a time of worship. Um, Sorry, of prayer. And if I could just ask you to stand and I'm just even going to leave some space for you to bring this before God of what that looks like for you. So, Father, we just come into your presence right now, Jesus. Lord, we say, have your will in this place. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest on your people in a tangible way where they would feel the encounter with you. Lord, you have called us not to be a living being, but to be a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. And, Father, I call out the life-givers in this place. Lord, I speak that there would be a transition from being a living being to a life-giving being. Father, I pray that we would start to look, where can we encourage rather than to tear down? Father, I pray that we could look, where can I bless rather than to keep to my own and bury my talents? Father, I pray that your people would find a space to meet with you this morning. Our life is not ours. Just, Just spend some time, and we'll just spend some time just... What does that mean for you? Meet with God and what that looks like. Don't let this be words that just fall off the, the, the end of the Sunday into lunch. But what is God calling you to give away from your life?